So as I already kind of hinted this morning, we're going to be looking at one truth, one kind of big idea, one particular specific truth uh, that we find in the gospel. Um, and, and before we get going, I just want to plug real quick. I want to invite you all back to come tonight at five to our Christmas party. Just even if you're not uh, that familiar with what's going on here, you may be new to the church, come, you'll learn uh, a little bit more about us, get to know a lot more people, and hopefully we'll have a blast. So join us tonight. We want to make sure you're invited. But we're going to be looking at a truth that has changed lives. It's been a transformative truth, a powerful truth through the ages. As people have encountered this truth, it has absolutely and radically transformed the trajectory of their lives. Uh, Martin Luther, as many of you know, was kind of the spark plug that ignited the, Re- the Reformation, uh, was uh, once a miserable monk. He was enslaved by depression. He was haunted by fear. He was convinced that a holy God, uh, the one that he was encountering in Scripture, or so he thought, would for sure judge him. And he was deathly afraid until, through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, he encountered a truth so precious that it freed him from his slavish fear and ignited a fire in his own heart that would end up, like I said, launching the Reformation. John Bunyan, as you know, the writer of uh, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, knew about Jesus, but didn't love Him and didn't really cherish Him. I wasn't really moved by him until this particular truth uh, struck him. And it became something that changed his life. It gave him a passion and a zeal for the gospel that eventually he was willing to suffer imprisonment for his Lord. He ended up doing that for 12 years. And during those 12 years, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. In more modern times, in the early 1900s, a theologian by the name of J. Gresham Machen on his deathbed as he wanted to console himself before he met his maker, there was one particular truth that he grasped onto, that he held onto on his deathbed. In fact, he sent a telegram to a good friend of his in his last hours thanking God for this specific gospel truth. I'm wondering how many of you know what I'm talking about, And how many of you, like these others who have gone before us, have also been struck or pierced or transformed by the beauty of this gospel truth that we're going to focus on this morning? This This is a sermon that might be a little bit unique. We're going to zero in on one particular passage, in fact, one part of one passage, and look at one particular big idea, one truth We're going to look at it from different angles, we're going to examine it, we're going to try to apply it, and my hope and prayer has been that in examining, beholding this, looking at it, thinking about it, meditating on it, that it will so strike us as to increase our love for Jesus Christ, uh, give us a confidence before Him, and therefore encourage our obedience to Him. I even hope that this holiday season might be change for you. If it's gone in a direction, uh, kind of going with the flow of our American kind of way of doing things, the materialism of uh, the holiday, if you've been going that way, I hope that this series and this sermon in particular will help get you back on track to behold a glorious Savior that we serve. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, turn in your Bibles there. You'll recognize it because that's where we were last week. 
I'm going to read the text, and you're going to notice that the first half of it is what we talked about last week, and then we're going to get talking about the second half of it this week. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul lays out for us kind of a summary of some of these precious gospel truths. He says this, For our sake, He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we, that's the people of God, that's everyone who is called by Him and welcomed into His family by faith, that we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ sin for us, not that He forced Him to sin, He made Him to be sin for us so that we might in Him become the righteousness of God. You recognize this from last week, right? That last week we talked about Jesus as our substitute. That Jesus is the one who voluntarily was sent from the Father, the Father sent Him, He voluntarily went into this fallen earth, into this fallen humanity to be the salvation for His people. And one of the things He did in His coming was take upon Himself the sin of all God's people. Upon Himself, all the guilt, all the sin, all the shame upon Himself. And then He went with that on the cross bore the punishment for our sin, shame, and guilt. The word that we even use, and you remember the word? Imputation. Uh, One of those big doctrinal words. Jesus was imputed our sin. The Father took our sins, removed them from us, imputed them to Jesus Christ, and Jesus paid for all our sins. You remember the imputations we find in the Bible? There's three of them. Adam's sin imputed to all humanity. Everyone's guilty before God. That's Romans chapter 5. Anyone who trusts in Christ, the sins of those people, the sins of believers, removed from them, imputed to Jesus. Jesus takes those sins to the cross. And there's a third imputation, and that imputation is what we'll be talking about this morning, is this, that Jesus gives His people His perfect righteousness. See that in the second part of the verse here. 2 Corinthians 5.21, do you see it? So that in Him, in Christ, we, His people, might become the righteousness of God. We're going to focus on that reality. We're going to dig a little bit here. It's been said that if you rake, you only get leaves, but if you dig, you might get diamonds. And we're going to dig a little bit here. We're going to look at this, we're going to stare at it, we're going to behold it a little bit, and the hope is, is in staring at this amazing reality that we might become the righteousness of God, we would be so moved to worship, so moved to love for the Savior that it really does alter the trajectory of our lives and hearts for this season. Here's what we're getting at here. This is what's happening. We're talking about Jesus, our righteousness. The first half of the verse we've already described all last week was describing the first half of the verse. You remember? Sins, our sins on Jesus, Jesus pays for them. Our sins really, truly removed from us, imputed to Christ, He pays their penalty. And the second half of this verse 
is we become the righteousness of God because we, by faith, are given the gift of Jesus' righteousness. Some theologians have used this phrase, the active obedience of Christ. You say, what does that mean? What's the active obedience of Christ? Here's what the active obedience of Christ means. And here's, I'm going to explain to you why it's important for us understanding the doctrine of imputation. The active obedience of Christ is, refers to this. It refers to the idea from the time that Jesus was born, from his very earliest stages, every moment of his life, he is living in perfect obedience to God. From, from childhood onward through his youth, all the way through the time that we read about in the Gospels, in every situation, in every hour, in every thought, in every action, he is perfectly obeying the will of the Father. He is making every decision in the most perfect possible way. He is never sinning in his mind. He is never sinning in his affections. He is never sinning in his actions. He is always, in every moment, in every minute, in every hour, every morning, every day, every evening of every night, Jesus is doing the perfect will of God. And so when you read through the New Testament, you're encountering utter human perfection. Jesus will never sin. He will never sin in mind, in heart, in deed. He is doing exactly what a perfect man would do in every possible situation he encounters. Okay? Never for a split second does he have a sinful temptation. Never for a split second does he have a sinful thought. Never for a split second does he, does, does he do anything wrong. He is, in his life, accruing for himself a perfect obedience. A perfect righteousness. You say, why is this so important? Because what the Bible teaches is that that perfect record of righteousness that he lived from his youth in through his baptism, in through his ministry, all the way through in every act, what the Bible teaches is that that record of righteousness is credited to the account of everyone who believes. That that perfect righteousness that Jesus accomplishes in his life, the active obedience of Jesus Christ is then given as a gift to all his children. This is laying the groundwork for imputation. And so what this means is that you, by faith, not because you actually have righteousness of your own, but by faith in Jesus are then given, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you so that when God sees you, not only what is true that we talked about last week, that all your sins are actually removed from you and actually put on Jesus and credited to his account so he pays for them, not only that is true that you're forgiven all your sins in that way, but also, and this is glorious, that all of Jesus' perfect record of righteousness is imputed to your account so that when God looks at you, He sees not your failures and not your sin and guilt. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is glorious that we can get our heads around this. So if we could spend time thinking about that truth, 
We're going to talk about a little more about how that truth affected those three men I used in my introduction. This is a phenomenal truth that when it pierces you, when it gets your mind and it captures your heart, it does change your life. It gives you a new perspective on everything. I want you to see this played out a little bit in in Philippians chapter 3. So you can turn there, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here because Paul loved this doctrine. And Paul, uh, for him, it made all the difference in the world with how he thought about himself, how he lived his life, where he put his hope. And we get this encounter as uh, chapter 3, you can start in verse 2. Where, where he's going to begin describing uh, where his confidence lies. Look at verse 2. He warns the, the Philippians, hey, look out for the dogs, those, who, those evildoers who look, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And listen, here, here's kind of a, a thesis, if you will. We put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, none. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what we've accomplished in life. No confidence in what we can do. And then he goes to say, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, um, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You might be thinking, wow, Paul, uh, quite something to boast in. But you're going to see his point here in a second. He, he's saying that when we stand before God, uh, we either can put our confidence in the flesh or we're going to put our confidence in something else. And we try to live this Christian life, we can either put confidence in the flesh or confidence in something else. And he says, here, I'm going to try to persuade you to stop putting any confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone has a good reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. And he starts giving all the pedigree, all the reasons about himself and the things he's done and his upbringing. And he says that this is no real reason for confidence in the flesh. We shouldn't actually put confidence. Look at what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, right on time for a Hebrew baby, of the people of Israel, that's the chosen people of God, I should then uh, look at who I am, I'm part of, part of God's people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a king came from that tribe, King Saul was there. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. We hear that word Pharisee when we think, oh, the bad guys of the story, right? These are the bad guys of the stories of the gospel, right? Well, in those days, Pharisees were a noble people, a educated people. These were the religious elite of the time. To become a Pharisee, you would have had to devote yourself to rigorous study. You would have had to spend years in studying the Old Testament, the laws, and all the various uh, things that had gone on in the Old Testament scriptures. You would have had to know it down pat. You would have had to have it. And he was, as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees actually began, it said, that they began maybe with good intentions to separate themselves from uh, a religion that they felt was drifting from holiness. And they wanted to fight for purity and holiness. And they wanted to be uh, the ones that were found in the right. And so that's how the Pharisees began. It's probable that over the span of Years, then when the Pharisees began, they drifted in toward a self-righteousness. And so he was a Pharisee, and he probably thought of himself as set apart as unto God, as one who had pursued the laws, studied it diligently. In fact, he goes on to say, look at this, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. That is to say that he was so zealously committed to what he felt were the things of God and Phariseeism, that he was opposed to anything that would threaten it. He was opposed to the church. 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See that? You look at his life. He has done everything to commend himself to God. And listen, in, in the eyes of that system, he succeeded. He had the pedigree, born from the right people and the right, right, uh, the right tribe, the right people group. He had the zeal. He had the right upbringing and education and Phariseeism. He was a zealous student, a zealous opposer of what he thought to be error. He was blameless under the law. Blameless. Did it all. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You see, you see what he's doing here? Here's a man who had devoted years and years to pursue what he thought to be something that could commend him to God and to make him righteous and to put confidence in his doings and his own flesh in his accomplishments, he felt he could commend himself. And now he looks back on all this and he says, whatever gain I had, whatever I accomplished, whoever I was, wherever I came from, all of it is loss. It's nothing compared to knowing Christ. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a modern way to think about this. And the illustration I've come up with is you can imagine... Uh, imagine some sort of scholar, a theologian or a philosopher, a, a brilliant mind. And he comes up with this great idea, his one big idea, his great idea. And he writes a book on it and he spreads this idea and the book is, takes over like wildfire, all the hearts and minds of those who read it and people are realizing how brilliant this man is and this one idea is so compelling the man begins to go on tour. He, he does conferences describing that truth. He writes more books applying that truth. He is the defender of that particular truth. He is building a whole library of his own works and journals and articles uh, applying and describing and working out the implications of this one big idea that he came up with. He wins all the academic awards. He accomplishes all the achievements and could you imagine, maybe toward the end of his life, he comes to the realization that that one big idea that he had built his whole life on was actually wrong. It was an error. And he, you could almost imagine him looking at his own library of books that he had written. He had written and looking at his own office and all the, on the, all the plaques on the wall and all the recognitions and all the awards. And he realizes that all I've been doing is leading people astray. Everything I've written is wrong. Everything I've done is a sham. None of this matters. All of this is just detracting from the truth. I can imagine Paul experienced something like that. All his life, he'd educated himself. He'd learned. He'd pursued something. He taught others. He was zealous. And then, in encountering Christ, he realized it's all garbage. It's all a sham. It's all nothing. It's nothing. He uses this word. You see there at, there at the end of verse 8, he counts these things as rubbish. 
This is every first-year seminarian's favorite Greek word. Skubalon is the word. It literally means, here's the Greek definition here, excrement, manure, garbage, or kitchen scraps. He's looking at all his accomplishments, all that he's done, he's saying it is nothing. Even in Greek, it's a little bit crude. Okay? He's trying to get the attention of his readers. I accomplished all these things. It is nothing. I've climbed the ladder. It's nothing. It's all empty. I've been there. I've been to the top. I've seen it. It's nothing. And I wonder if some of you have maybe gone down the similar road like, like Paul and you've pursued certain things that you felt would make you commendable, maybe not only to God, but also to society, and you've, you've built a life around an idea that if you can do this, if you can do enough, if you can accomplish this, then you will have lived a life worth living. And Christ comes along and reorients everything, and this has happened to some of you, and you go, I didn't know that all this stuff I was pursuing is worthless in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And you begin to ask the question, how do I reorient my whole life now so that Christ is all? Uh, It's nothing. Our righteous deeds, Paul goes on to make very clear, are, are nothing. They're rubbish. They're trash. They're excrement. They're manure. They're worthless. They're nothing to commend ourselves to God. We could be on our best day trying to do the best things for God, and all we're doing is putting lipstick on a pig. We really can't commend ourselves to God. We're, we're painting the corpses to try to make them more lifelike. We, we, before God, have nothing to commend ourselves. I think it was, um, it was Sam Zarate uh, gave me an illustration that I'm going to share with you. He he, in his job, often has worked with landfills and dumpsters. And I remember him saying to me um, that he used to go and sometimes watch these big crates just dump the filth into the landfill. And he would think of his life before he was saved and say, there's my life before Christ, as all the filth is emptied into the landfill. And that's Paul's mindset. And that's the biblical truth. That's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end, Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds, listen to that, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. On your best day, our sin runs so deep, the infection is so pervasive that on our best days, they're still tainted with sin. And so we can't commend ourselves to God. Paul is realizing this. He is realizing and he's describing this, that all the things he's done, all the good things according to the world, all the accomplishments, it's all loss. It's all rubbish. But watch this. Watch this. Verse 8, kind of second half, second way, halfway through, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I lose it all, I gain Christ. It's gain to lose Christ and lose everything. But listen to this. I want you to see this. You've got to look in the text and see this with your own eyes. I gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, you see this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that righteousness, which comes from, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see it? 
I gain Christ, I gain a righteousness. See it? I gain Christ, I'm found in Christ, I no longer have my own righteousness to commend myself to God. It's not my righteousness that comes from being obedient to the law. I have a different righteousness. It's a righteousness from God. It's a righteousness from heaven. Well, whose righteousness do you think it is? It's Christ's perfect righteousness that he accrued in his life, in his act of obedience. He followed exactly the will of the Father all along. And when you gain Christ, you're credited his perfect righteousness. You, by faith, gain Christ. You get all of who he is. And all of his perfect righteousness is credited to your account. In Paul's understanding, there's two righteousnesses. There's two righteousnesses in the world. There's your own righteousness, the the righteousness of of humanity, and the good works that we can do, the things that we can try to accomplish and achieve to commend ourselves to God as we try to live up to some sort of moral standard. And there's Christ's righteousness. And you can clothe yourself in one of those uh, for judgment day. And Paul is reminding us here that in his experience, all that he did was nothing. It was rubbish. It was loss. But in gaining Christ, he gained a righteousness, a perfect and complete righteousness that was imputed to him, credited to his account, so that Paul was seen through the eyes of God. God looked at Paul and saw Christ's perfect obedience. He saw Christ's untainted, perfectly pure righteousness because it, in fact, was Paul's. And this is the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, of the act of obedience of Christ as you, by faith, not by works, not by your own righteousness, by faith alone, casting yourself at the feet of the cross, At the feet of the Savior, God imputes to you, reckons to your account, credits it as if it was actually yours, all the perfect active obedience of Jesus Christ. So that you could say with Paul, you gain Christ, and in gaining Christ, you don't have your own righteousness to commend yourself to God. You have a righteousness from God a gift from heaven, an external righteousness, an objective righteousness that's credited to your account. I'm reading right now a little devotional book called Why Christ Came, little 31 meditations on the incarnation. I try to get my heart and mind right through this season to focus on things that really matter. And there's one particular illustration that I really liked in this point, point. I wanted to share it with you. He, he describes a, a, a two men that are working in a workshop. The boss tells the worker to cut all the boards a certain size so that when he gets back, they're ready to move forward with their building project. The boss leaves, and the worker gets to work, and he starts cutting all the boards. He finishes all the boards and comes to the realization that he cut them all short. Every single one of them is cut wrong. They're all just a few inches short. He begins to fear the boss's return. This worker has two big problems. One, the evidence of his failures all around him. 
Every miscut board is evidence that he wasn't careful enough and he didn't do the will of his boss. You know what the other problem is? He has no boards that are cut right. None of them. In fact, they can't move forward with any of the project if all of the boards are cut wrong and none of them are cut right. Here is an illustration of humanity's predicament. We have two big problems. We have cut every single board wrong. In other words, we have sinned in multiple ways, in a multitude of ways. Every day we've fallen short of the glory of God, and the evidence of that sin is all around us. But you know what else we've failed? We don't have the righteousness that God requires. We don't have any of that in our lives. God calls us to have a perfect righteousness. He is perfectly holy. Jesus said that we must be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. And how many of us have done that? We have failed not only in the fact that we have done wrong things, but also in the fact that we don't have a righteousness to commend ourselves to God. Here's, listen, the gospel. God solves both of those problems through imputation. He takes our miscut boards our sin, he removes them from our workshop of life, he puts them on Christ, and Christ pays the penalty that we could never pay. But not only that, he provides for us all the rightly cut boards, all the things that God has required of us, he so graciously gives to us, and we are credited with his good work as though we did it ourselves. We are given the perfect record of righteousness, so we meet every righteous requirement that God has required of his people. Our sins are removed from us in substitution on the cross. His righteousness is gifted to us in his life, death, burial, resurrection. This is our hope. This is absolutely our hope. In membership interviews, I often ask, You're going to die one day, and when you do, you're going to stand before the holy God who created you and who will judge you. And as you stand before him, imagine he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? In certain times, I remember uh, in another church years ago asking a young man that very question, and he immediately began to describe all the good things he had done. He described how faithful he was in attending church, how he had been baptized, how he was one of the few kids in the youth group that showed up regularly, how he tried to read his Bible with persistence. He tried to spend time in prayer, and it was one of those sad but glorious moments to look him in the eye and say, friend, that's the wrong answer. Those are all good things, but none of those things can commend you to God. None of those will. And I had this opportunity to explain to him the true gospel Oftentimes, as I do this membership interview with with our membership here, I get such an encouraging answer, something along the lines like this. I don't deserve to go into heaven. It's Christ. It's him. My my hope is on him, that in his death, he, he paid for my sin. And in his resurrection, he has gifted me his own righteousness. I have nothing to commend myself to God. I'm banking it all on Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the kind of people we are. We are the kind of people who bank our eternal destinies on the accomplishments of another. And therefore, we ought to be some of the most 
humble people on the planet because we recognize that any good thing that we have is not because we've earned it. It is because God in His amazing mercy and grace has in His sovereign pleasure decided to gift us with that thing. We're banking our eternal destiny on the performance of Jesus Christ. To round this, this out a little bit, I want to uh, give you three words. Three words that help round out, clarify, put the full color, this gospel reality. We're going to talk about this righteousness that God gives to us. First of all, here's our first word, external. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. External. The righteousness that God gives is an external righteousness. You, you have to emphasize this. I, wanna, I want you to get this. This righteousness is outside of you. This is an amazing thought when it takes root. The imputed righteousness that Jesus gives you is not inherently yours. It is Jesus's and it is external to you. Because it's his, it is objective, it is outside of you, and you are justified or declared righteous, not based on the actual day-to-day goodness or badness that you have or your actual practical progressive sanctification. You are declared righteous based on an external, gifted, objective righteousness. Paul says it like this, I don't have a righteousness of my own. It's not his. He is saved because it's a different external objective righteousness that's credited to his account. I love to just think about that. My, my standing with God is not in here. It's not because of the things I've done here and in here or with my hands. It's not anything to do with things I've accomplished, but on the external Savior and his righteousness that's mine. Uh, you, if you, you have eyes to see, this comes up a lot in the hymns that we sing. You notice this? This comes out, the, the external fact of the righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts. We sing a song called uh, Before the Throne of God Above. A beautiful song packed to the brim with gospel truths. And one of the, the stanzas has a word in it that just fires me up. It's, it's not the word you'll think. It's the stanza where he goes, Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. You guys love that stanza? What a stanza. You know, you know what word just sticks out to me, just makes me glory? It's this. There. Behold him there, the risen lamb. That gives me so much hope because my standing is not here. My standing before God on Judgment Day is not based on the things I have done. It's based on that righteous Savior who has given Himself to me. I am saved because of something external to myself, and therefore I cannot botch it up. I could if, 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 I, if I could, I would. You believe me. If I could botch up Christ's righteousness, I'd figure out a way. But I can't because it's external to me. It's gifted to me. It is objective. It is real. It is not based on you. you can, I mean, I'll try to illustrate this. Think of that big tree outside that's on the playground. You guys got it in your mind? There's a, you guys are all thinking about a tree. You're hopefully all thinking of the same tree, and yet everyone has kind of a different imagination of what you're thinking that tree is. 
And some of us, that tree corresponds more to the reality of the tree. And some of us, are, you don't even know what tree I'm talking about. And so the tree in your mind is not at all correlating with the real tree out there. Now, regardless of how accurate your perception of the tree is, there is an objective tree out there. It is external to you. And even if you have the most off idea of what that tree looks like, there is a real objective outside of you tree that's out there. Now, this is Jesus' righteousness. Each one of us, uh, in different ways, because we're varying in our likeness to Christ, because we're all growing in various times and different seasons in our life, we're all various stages of growth, we all reflect the righteousness of Christ to varying degrees. But the righteousness that commends us to God, right? The righteousness that justifies you is not your own personal righteousness. It is the objective, external, outside of you, not in your imagination, the living, resurrected Christ. It's His righteousness, external to you, on which you base your eternal hope. That is why you're justified, because of His accomplishments, because of His external righteousness. This reality, when, when Martin Luther encountered it, he, he moved from haunted and depressed, from declaring that he hated God, from declaring that he knew he deserved only God's justice, when he read in Romans 1.18, the righteous shall live by faith. And when he understood that the righteousness of God is imputed to the believer, when they have faith, he, he said it like this, the gates to paradise were opened wide. It just changed him. He realized it's not on me. I can stand before a holy God because the external righteousness of Christ is mine. Secondly, it's, it's external, but also it's unchangeable. And those two, I hope you see, are related. Because it's not yours, because you are a changeable being, if the righteousness by which you were saved was based on you, that righteousness could fluctuate, couldn't it? If, if the righteousness by which you were saved was your own personal outworking of righteousness, that fluctuates. You can become more righteous in your life, or maybe you can backslide. But what this is saying, because it's Jesus' righteousness, it's not only external to you, it is unchanging and everlasting. It is a righteousness that will see you through through all your days and for all the days to come after that from eternity to eternity, everlasting to everlasting. You will forever, always, unchangeably be recognized before God as righteous because it is unchangeable righteousness. Why? Because it's Jesus' righteousness. And does Jesus change? What does the Bible say about Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, for all eternity. His perfect righteousness will remain pure, untainted, undefiled, and that righteousness is your righteousness. And so you will never have to fear sliding out of the grace of God, those who are justified. You will never have to fear sinning your way out of your justification because the justification uh, the, the, or the righteousness by which you are justified is external to you because it's Jesus's, and it's unchangeable because it's Jesus's. Let's just apply this for a second. Think about this in your own lives. Don't, don't let these doctrinal truths just remain up here. Let's think about how they, they affect the way we live. Do the ups and downs of everyday life get you into a whirl of uncertainty sometimes? 
did really good today. God must be for me. Oh man, I did really bad today. Wonder if he's going to abandon me. I'm doing really good. He's going to hear my prayers more now. Oh man, I've done nothing. I've been kind of lazy sitting around all day during these holidays. He probably doesn't want to hear from me. If you're saved, right this very instant, and from the instant you were converted, from the instant you had faith, right this very instant, and for all eternity, this week, this year, this decade, this life, all eternity, God has declared you to be His righteous beloved. You have a perfect, unchangeable, everlasting righteousness. It's yours. And you can't change it. It was this reality that got a hold of John Bunyan. I mentioned him at the beginning, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. He too, he was a miserable man. He would carry around chains of guilt. He suffered from chronic depression. He thought about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. But nothing seemed to impact him. But in his autobiography, he writes about a day. He's walking through a field. He's, he's by himself in this thought comes into his mind, and it was this sentence. My righteousness is in heaven. That was the thought. My righteousness is in heaven. Just this thought just, just appears in his mind. And he begins to think. This is what he said with his own words in his autobiography. He goes, and I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. You see the external thing there too? There's my righteousness so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for it's right there in front of him. Also I saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made it worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same Day, yesterday, and forever. It, it just struck him. There's my righteousness. It's not on me. It's on him. He goes on to write this. Now did chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off, to, left off trouble to me. Now when I also, I went home rejoicing. For the grace and love of God. If Jesus is your righteousness, then you have an everlasting righteousness, an unchanging righteousness, something that will never be uh, dying with time. It will never grow old. It will never become impure because Jesus does not ever lose a single degree of his righteousness, and that will be yours for all eternity. This is so life-giving. I don't know where all of you are at, but there are many of us who... Behind closed doors, in the dark, there's an internal torment happening. A turmoil, a struggle within the soul with guilt and shame. Uh, there's sometimes this nagging sense of doubt that because of my remaining sin, I can't stand before God. And if you don't, quickly this reality that Jesus is your righteousness you could drown there run quick to this 
awesome truth. Here's the third word, unearnable. Unearnable. It is a free righteousness. It is not a righteousness that you work up with your own hands. As Paul said, it's not a righteousness that's your own, that comes from the law. It's not anything like that. He says, it comes through faith in Christ. It is free. It is unearnable. It's not something you have to do enough to get to the point where you're now qualified to receive this righteousness. You say, well, what do I need to do? Here's what the Bible teaches. It's unearnable, and also it's reserved for people who know that they can never get by it themselves. You come to try to, to come to God in your own righteousness, by the works of your hands, by your own accomplishments. The righteousness of Christ is withheld from you. But you come to him in abject need. You come to him bankrupt. You come to him with nothing. You come to him with only your sins and all your guilt. And you come to him and you say, I deserve hell. And all my sins are condemning me. And I deserve nothing except your righteous justice to send me away from you. But I'm banking myself on your grace. I'm banking myself on your mercy. It is those people that God loves to save. And it is those people he gives a perfect, unchanging, everlasting, external righteousness that will be there for them on the great day. That's what you want. It's as if God cries out to the world through his word. There is a true righteousness for you. Come all you who are bankrupt. Come all you who are poor in spirit. Come all of you who have nothing to commend yourself. Come with empty hands. Come those who are thirsty. Come those who are hungry. Come those who have absolutely nothing in terms of their own goodness and achievements and righteousness. And I tell you, these people who understand their true condition, the lowest of the low, the sinners, the the left out, those who are poor in spirit, those are the ones who come flocking to Jesus Christ because in him they get a perfect righteousness. Here's the beauty of it. The greatest saint you've ever that has ever lived. You could scour all the pages of church history and think of all the amazing men and women of God who have gone before us and think of all the accomplishes, accomplishments they've done in their lifetime. And you, poor sinner, and you, the lowest of the low, the moment you believe you are right at the same point of them because you share in the perfect, unchanging, external, everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it's free. Listen, they didn't do anything to earn it. Neither can you. But when you believe, you get the same exact righteousness that they get. That's why there is at the same time as there's a humility for all those who are trusting in Christ, there is a confidence, isn't there? I got the same righteousness as the Apostle Paul, and so do you. And any person through church history that we might admire, we share in the same perfect righteousness gifted to us. It's ours as well. Let's lift our heads up. Let's be confident. Let's walk in amazement that God would grant us such mercy and such grace. It's free. Romans 4.3 makes this perfectly clear. What does Scripture say, Paul writes? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do you have to do to get that righteousness? He believed the promise. That's it. That's it. He just believed the promise. The moment he believed the promise, boom, righteous. Now all the perfect righteousness of Christ given to Abraham 
although Abraham had not seen Christ and did not know all that he would do, uh, that skipped through time and touched him, and right there he was declared justified. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work. You hear that? The one who does not work. The one who keeps trying to work doesn't get the righteousness. The one who gives up and stops working but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Listen, his faith is counted as righteousness. You don't have a righteousness, but you're counted Jesus' righteousness the moment you believe. We must believe. It's free. You must reach out and grab it with hands of faith. You must believe. You must rely. When you do, you're converted. You're justified. The gavel sounds, the heavenly gavel, and you are declared to be innocent. You are declared to be righteous, and you are free from all condemnation from now into all eternity. Rejoice. This is amazing. As we wrap up, I wonder if any of you are wondering about the relevance of this truth. Maybe you came to church this morning tired, sad, facing some sort of depression, struggling with some doubts, Maybe there's very practical issues that are distracting you. Your finances aren't what you thought they'd be this time of year. You're anxious about your next doctor's appointment. You got the holidays and all the families coming and there's all kinds of family drama. And here we are talking about an abstract theological doctrine about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to his people. So come on, Eric. Give me something I could use. Give me something practical. Well, I want to give you something you can use. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I want you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection, what he offers you this morning, God has done everything necessary for you to be saved. The gates, as it were, are wide open, and you by faith must walk in and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is nothing left for you to do. You cannot earn anything, but you can freely, by faith, receive the robes of Christ's righteousness and be justified forevermore. You will be prepared for judgment day. And you will live with a sort of humble confidence that maybe you've never known before. If you're not a Christian, I would plead with you. Come to Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, let me say I believe that this is one of those doctrines that grows more valuable and more precious with age. When the dark shadow of death is so distant on the horizon, we don't tend to think much about our great need of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Or we get busy, especially this time of year. We forget the total holiness of God who demands utter perfection of His children and when we forget that reality, we don't see the imputed righteousness of Christ as very precious. 
But if we're in touch with God's blazing holiness, if we understand that life is short like a vapor, and that very soon all of us will stand before the judge of the universe, let me tell you, you will cling to this precious promise. This will be a life fest for you. And you might not immediately sense how practical it is as you walk out these doors. What must I do today to apply this truth? Although there are applications in that way. But I sense that as we grow, as we learn, as we experience life, as we suffer, as we battle our own sin, as we face our own death, we will increasingly be leaning on the promise that Christ's righteousness is ours. And that we therefore are justified forever on that promise. I can't tell you how much personally this has been a life vest for me. This is one of those truths that I've gone to again and again in my life, in my battle against sin. I could have a great family and a loving wife, and I could have a thriving ministry, and I could have uh, people coming to hear the sermons and the church growing and all kinds of friends, and still have a nagging sense of guilt because of my indwelling sin. And I can't tell you how often it has been the case where I have needed personally to go somewhere quiet, to open up this book and say, no, I'm not justified because I deserve it. I'm not justified. I'm not going to be right to stand before God because I've earned something. It's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I've done enough. It's not because I've achieved anything. All my hope is in Jesus Christ. That's all I have. And I have to go back to this. It's His blood paying for my sin. And it's His righteousness being credited to my account. And therefore, I am eternally secure. All eternity, I will shout the praises of my security because Christ is mine forevermore. I'm justified. And you in Christ are as well. And when the time comes that the accuser begins lobbing those grenades of doubt in fear, in shame, in guilt. Where do you go? Jesus, my righteousness. Jesus, my substitute. And next week we'll see Jesus, my great high priest. As Machen, the theologian, was dying, there will come a day that we're all dying. The sounds of the hospital will be all around us, nurses going in and out, tubes in our bodies, beepings and sounds, and the end will be very near. The world will be melting away. Where's your hope going to be? For Machen, in the last hour of his life, he sent a telegram to his friend, and he said this. It was his last words. Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That's it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We will all stand before the judge, and we have nothing in ourselves to commend our, us to him Accept Jesus. 
who was our substitute on the cross to pay for all our sins, and who is our righteousness, because He has gifted it to us by imputation, and we by faith are saved forevermore. Let's pray. So Lord, this holiday season, as we reflect on Jesus Christ, we rejoice that you have dealt with our sins, that you have given us your righteousness, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you bury our sins in the deepest sea, and you clothe us with the white robes of the righteousness of Christ, and that is all our hope, the external, unchanging and everlasting and free righteousness of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would increasingly rejoice in these realities, our joy spike as we contemplate these things, and we would be moved to risk-taking sacrificial obedience because of this amazing truth. In Jesus' name, amen.